Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm James Blitz, standing in for Gideon Rackman as we resume our podcast for 2011. This week, Southern Sudan is voting in a referendum on independence. We'll hear from our correspondent in the region, Katrina Manson, about the huge exodus of people from the north to the south in anticipation of a new country being created. Then Haiti... Over 300,000 people died in 2010 in a devastating earthquake. One year on, what has happened to the reconstruction effort? Andrew Jack reports from Port-au-Prince on a nation struggling to rebuild. And in the US, the shooting of Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords has shocked the nation and prompted questions about incendiary political debate. Is it acceptable to target the opposition? With me in the studio are William Wallace, the Financial Times' Africa editor, and James Crabtree, our comment editor and an expert on the US. Welcome to you both. Let's start with Sudan. Earlier, Katrina Manson, our East Africa correspondent, sent this report. Mary Nyalwak is among 150 southern Sudanese who have packed up their lives in the north of Sudan to return home, following years of civil war. She arrived in Bentu capital of southern Sudan's unity state, on the north-south border, with little but chairs and bedding. Even though now we don't have a place to stay, she said, we are in our own country. Nearly four million southerners are voting in a historic referendum expected to win their independence and split Africa's largest country in two. A constant flow of buses, sometimes 35 in a single day, delivers people to Benchu Market. Many simply want to go home after years spent running from war. Others are unsure what will happen to them if they stay in the north. Haliza Nyakos brought only her three children on the bus journey. I will never go back to Khartoum, she said from her bus seat, carrying one child on her lap. I brought nothing, only some clothes for me and my children. In the southern marketplace, women prepare coffee for northern Islamic traders as usual. Adam Haroun, a northerner who shuttles back and forth, has no plans to leave. The only change I see is that now I might need a passport to do my job, he said. But such is the scale of the exodus, it threatens the humanitarian crisis. People heed sacks of food from aid agencies who have already fed 116,000 returnees. The government expects half a million to return by July, when the South is due to break away if the referendum confirmed victory for separatists. The security threat seems to be growing, but the UN has not been able to confirm reports that 10 returnees were killed in an ambush on a bus heading towards southern Sudan earlier this week. Some have even reached home by barge, travelling the Nile for 12 days. At the port in the southern capital, Juba, returnees smoke shisha pipes on metal chairs wound with string for seats in front of a collection of furniture, mattresses and dried fish braided into plaques for safekeeping. They told me they were still waiting for government transport to take them back to their villages eight days after arriving. As southern Sudan waits for the close of polls on Saturday, the likely new state will struggle to accommodate the newcomers in an area that has seen decades of civil war. 
William, we've heard there from Katrina in Benchu, and there are clearly some big problems there. There's a big migration happening. There are security issues. How unstable is the situation in Sudan? Well, I think the migration, and some people uh, believe up to half a million people will have returned from the north of Sudan to the south by the middle of the year in anticipation of the creation of a new state. It will stretch the capacity uh, of the government in southern Sudan. Um, but it's only one of uh, a whole number of uh, difficulties that uh, Sudan is likely to, to face as, as it um, approaches uh, separation. Just remind us, going back to the beginning, why is this happening? Why is this referendum happening? And why does the South want to break away from the North? Um, the referendum was a key clause in a peace agreement that emerged in 2005 uh, between uh, the Khartoum regime and southern rebels who'd been fighting uh, Khartoum for many, many years, uh, fighting, they say, against discrimination and prejudice and against attempts by the North to impose cultural and religious values upon them. Um, it was the key clause because uh, the, the southern rebels would not probably have signed up to other parts of the agreement unless there was some possibility of breaking away from, uh, from the north of Sudan if there, uh, if uh, unity continued not to work. And I think uh, the, the conclusion has been for most so southern Sudanese that it hasn't. Whenever you see things like this happening, states breaking up, as you saw in the former Soviet Union, one of the biggest issues is who's got the assets, who's got the natural resources. What's in it for the southern Sudanese? What are the problems for the north as this process goes forward? And what is the potential destabilization that might happen? Well, I suppose the biggest issue there is oil. Uh, and uh, Sudan is uh, Africa, sub-Saharan Africa's third largest oil producer. Um, about 80% of the reserves are actually in the south, right. uh, though they're carried to market through a pipeline that goes through the north. Um, ironically, given that oil is often a divider, um, the shared resource has actually helped to cement the peace during, during the last six years since p the peace agreement was signed. But the North but, is going to lose out big time as a result of this, clearly, if, that, if, if so much of the oil resources are in the South. Uh, it, it, it could well do, but uh, I think this is a central component of the negotiations that will start actually after the referendum uh, on the mechanics of the separation. What are the issues for the international community and other African states as they look at this? I mean, how worrying is this? Is there a risk of failed state issues developing and so on as a result of a breakup like this? Well, certainly, uh, I think the referendum itself is, is really uh, an illustration of how Sudan has failed as a state. Uh, and the hope is that uh, if um, the South secedes, uh, it will be able to create a viable state, although there are enormous challenges. Um, and the, the North equally will be able to address some of its own issues. There is a great danger that really the opposite will happen, that this will begin to... Uh, it will encourage other disaffected groups in the north of Sudan to start rebelling uh, or continue rebelling against the centre. The other issue for uh, Africa more broadly um, is that um, since independence from uh, colonial powers, uh, uh, only one state has broken away, and that was Eritrea. Um, for, uh, only one state has, has split up. Um, uh, there's a lot of worry in, on the continent that what's happening in Sudan could create a precedent and that uh, 
um, other states may, other separatist groups may wish to follow suit. Which other countries are, are in Africa are looking on this with, with concern, would you say? Well, I think most of Africa is, given that the, the borders inherited from colonial powers were so arbitrarily drawn and cut across ethnicities, cut across economic interest groups, cut across just about everything. Um, so I, I suppose some of the bigger states are a worry looking forward, like Congo. Uh, Nigeria has its divisions as well. Uh, I think there are uh, uh, Ivory Coast right now, which is going through its own conflict. William Wallace, Africa editor, thank you very much indeed. Now, Andrew Jack, um, our correspondent, has been in Haiti for the last few days to see how the reconstruction effort there has progressed and to witness the commemoration of the earthquake that uh, took place in 2010. Earlier today, uh, he sent the Financial Times this report. Walking around the City de Soleil district of Port-au-Prince, you see the worst of third-world misery. People live in tiny ramshackle lean-to shacks of scavenged plastic, wood and metal, surrounded by rubbish. They have scant access to clean water, sanitation or education, and they live under the constant threat of violence. But this is not a scene created by the devastating earthquake that hit the Haitian capital one year ago. It's the result of decades of neglect, underinvestment, and mismanagement. It was less damaged than other parts of the city, partly because there was so little there to be destroyed. This week, Jean-Max Berlis, the Haitian Prime Minister, himself expressed frustration that City de Soleil, long a compulsory detour for poverty tourists, had fallen into neglect as the world's attention focused instead on earthquake damage and the temporary camps established afterwards. Yet paradoxically, even if many of the camps established in recent months may appear squalid, those living inside have access to water, latrines, medical facilities, schools, and even sometimes cash handouts. Others who remained in their homes, and many less affected by the earthquake, who live elsewhere around Haiti, survive in far worse conditions. The challenge for Haiti is not simply to restore the way things were before the earthquake, but to tackle much more fundamental structural issues. Judging from the frenetic activity in City de Soleil, with people busy in small workshops, making, selling and repairing, there is considerable entrepreneurial talent to be tapped. But what its residents and those across the country need most is sustained commitment from international donors and, above all, a radical new leadership within the country itself. That was Andrew Jack in Haiti. The shooting of US Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords in Arizona last weekend has shocked America. But what effect will it have on US politics? James Crabtree, the Financial Times' comment editor, is with us. James... There are many aspects of the story, of course, but let's start with the shooting itself. What do we know now about the motives behind the attack? The problem is we don't know very much. Uh, some snippets of information about the shooter emerged on the Internet that he had some rather unsavoury tastes in books and would occasionally make wacky YouTube videos. But basically we know very little about why he did this, uh, whether he was ill, whether he was politically motivated, and that created a bit of a vacuum um, in which uh, competing political voices decided that they'd take it upon themselves to, to infer why he might have done this, and that was what created the media storm that followed the shooting. 
Yes, I mean, what's happened is that this has become a huge political issue in the US, with many people saying that this shooting was in some degree motivated or part of the very wild rhetoric that there's been as a result of the emergence of the Tea Party and of Sarah Palin in particular in the run-up to the 2012 presidential election. I mean, to what extent do you think that's justified? I, I think there's been some fairly extreme claims on the liberal side of the debate. Normally, these extreme claims uh, come from the right, or often they do. This time, I think many people have assumed that even though there's very little evidence that this guy was connected to the Tea Party, um, you know, that, that he probably was, and therefore you can make the same points about the tone in which American politics is conducted. But the really crucial thing was that the shooting, tragic though it was, happened at a moment of huge political importance where Sarah Palin and others might be w barely weeks away from declaring their candidacy to be uh, America's president, while Barack Obama, after a dreadful 2011, 2010 rather, is trying to pick himself up for, for this year. Um, and it's that moment that has created the political heat around this, uh, this tragedy. Yes. As you say, Sarah Palin has been in the spotlight again, and she launched a staunch defense via a video message of, of her case. Let's hear a little of what she had to say. Especially within hours of a tragedy unfolding, journalists and pundits should not manufacture a blood libel that serves only to incite the very hatred and violence that they purport to condemn. That is reprehensible. There are those who claim political rhetoric is to blame for the despicable act of this deranged, apparently apolitical, criminal. And they claim political debate has somehow gotten more heated just recently. But when was it less heated? That was Sarah Palin there using that phrase blood libel, which in many ways actually only kind of ratchets up the whole nature of the debate. I mean, what do you think the impact is on her, first of all, of this whole debate? Has this undermined her as she prepares to launch a presidential campaign? I mean, I think it has. Her, um, her tactic tends to be, when attacked, to attack the media uh, uh, because her supernatural supporters in the conservative base think that America, America's media is very liberal, it has it in for them, and therefore she gets a lot of mileage out of doing this. But on this occasion, both because the, the phrase blood libel is such mm. a sort of peculiar phrase to use, but also because she stuck quite a, a pugilistic tone when people were looking for, for unity, it, it does seem to have harmed her. Um, and it stands in stark contrast to the speech given by President Obama only 24 hours later, in which most people seem to agree he hit it almost note perfect in yeah. terms mm -hmm. of uh, uh, soothing the victims while calling for unity in a divided nation. Yes, that's the other question. Of course, as you say, it's damaged Sarah Palin. To what extent has this whole incident and the aftermath buttressed and supported the position of the president now, who's had a very, who had a very difficult 2010. Yeah, I mean, it's slightly distasteful to talk about it in these terms, but Barack Obama at the end of last year was in a very difficult position. He just had a thumping defeat in the congressional elections. He was way down in the polls. Nothing was going his way. But actually, for the last two months, he's been doing relatively well. He had a few legislative victories. He made a few good speeches. His polling crawled back above 50%. And now he's done what he does best, which is giving huge speeches with beautiful words which remind the country why they liked him so much in the first place. And I think it will have a big impact on his popularity and perhaps more importantly in the long term it will probably shake up uh, 
the, the race for who his opponent will be on the Republican side in 2012. So as you stand back, and there's still a long way to go, I mean, it's November 2012 for the election, but I mean... Where do things stand then at the moment? I mean, is, it, it, a lot depends, of course, on whether the Republicans find a decent, moderate ca- candidate, I suppose. I, I mean, I think those who fancied, throwing, those Republicans who thought that they ought to be president, and there's at least two dozen of them, uh, many of them would have been put off if they thought Sarah Palin was a very strong candidate because whoever whoever wants to win has to get past her and a couple of other people's first. So if Palin looks weakened, looks a less plausible candidate, it will just change the calculation that all of the other candidates might think, well, hang on a minute, maybe I do have a chance here. Maybe I should throw my hat into the ring. And so I think it, it just means that that long time uh, to go uh, that, that there is until the election, um, it just means that the race will become more fluid and more open again because Palin looks less presidential and weaker than she did a couple of weeks ago. Just coming back to the question of rhetoric, if we can, just one more time. I mean, you know America very well. Is the sort of level of rhetoric and antagonism, phrases like blood libel, what you're seeing from the Tea Party, is this significantly more highly charged than anything we've seen in the last few decades in the US or or have we seen sort of seen this sort of thing before? I think there has always been a populist tone to American politics which you know isn't always uh, true in Europe but I think particularly because of changes in American media both initially on the right but increasingly on the left as well where you have not just um, you know a very vibrant talk radio sector but also hugely important political news notably Fox on the Republican side but increasingly MSNBC on the left and these star commentators whose job it is to outshout the other that yes I mean I think there has been um, a, a, a reweighting of the way America talks to itself in favour of the extremes and with you know the moderate voices in the middle commensurately less powerful. So yeah, I mean I think that has been a shift, and I suspect that although there might be a momentary pause in hostilities, the forces pulling in the other direction are just too strong, and we will continue in that direction. We'll leave it there. Fascinating, James Crabtree. Thank you very much. And William Wallace in the studio, thank you as well. And thanks to Andrew Jack in Haiti and Katrina Manson in Sudan. And thank you, the listener, for listening. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.